Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. A few days ago, I thought I loved you. But since I last saw you, I feel I love you a thousand times more. All the time I have known you, I adore you more each day. Which just shows how wrong I was to think that love comes all at once. When I am tired of the worry of work, when I fear the outcome, when men annoy me, when I am ready to curse being alive, I put my hand on my heart, your portrait hangs there. I look at it and our love brings me perfect happiness. In a love letter from Napoleon Bonaparte to his wife, Josephine, the emperor of France carried on a tradition that started with Roman soldiers and became popular in the early Renaissance. Napoleon did what so many human beings from every time and place have done before him. He explained the depth of his emotion to someone else. But what if you could write that love letter to yourself, your sender and receiver? What would you write? More important, how would you feel when you read it? Today's guest did just that. When I read her wonderful book called Love Yourself Happy, A Journey Back to You, what I read was a love letter to her soul, dedicated to her shadows, loving herself through them, in spite of them, and because of them. Her name is Sherry Elise, and she waited her entire life to write the greatest love letter, letter ever written. This letter is vulnerable, it's inspirational, and it's distinct because it begins and ends with her. Sherry is a motivational speaker, a best-selling author, a joy coach, the co-founder of the Wellness Universe. She's a travel junkie, a nature lover, and what I love about the contrast here, an outgoing introvert. And she wrote a great book that I encourage everyone to read, and she has been featured on just about every major television and radio station out there. Her passion is helping you see and be the real you, not the limited, have to prove yourself, not good enough, and that you've been taught to believe none of that, but the badass, the always good enough, the powerful and the beautiful you that you are. And it is my pleasure to collaborate with her today. Sherry, welcome to A Climb to the Top Stories of Transformation. Thank you, Chuck, so much for that amazing intro. I'm like, oh my goodness, is that me? <laughs> I wondered about that. And as I was prepping for the show, as I was reading your book, it was almost as if I was beginning to see stars. I was seeing different things as if, what am I feeling here? And so I stopped, I closed my eyes and I stopped trying to regard what I see. And I started to answer the question, what am I feeling here? And as I was going through the book and there were different passages that were speaking to me, I said, my God, this is wonderful. But what I saw, Sherry, and I wonder if this is what you were going through. I saw contrast. I saw tragedy and triumph. I saw darkness and light. I saw the young Sherry. I saw the adult Sherry. 
was that, and we'll get into the book in a minute, but what was that the rhetorical technique by intention or did, did it just happen that way? Oh, I, I, I didn't set out to do that. Uh, I think that naturally is who I am. Right. Uh, just as a person, always being introspective, always observing, always trying to understand. And because, as you found out in the book, that I spent a lot of years feeling super disconnected to myself, mm -hmm. uh, I think now that I've discovered her, there's that play and that role of trying to understand and then talking back. And it's, you know, I, I joked with you beforehand that it's the many voices in my head. No, and I understand that. But what really struck me as I read the book and I looked at the introduction and the introduction was written by a rather interesting individual up in the heavens. You wrote or <laughs> the introduction was God, G-O-D showing up and writing the letter. And God even said, and I wanted to make a note of that. God said, you, Sherry, it hasn't always been easy to get through to you, but I'm going to try. Why, why, why did you take this approach? And I loved it. But for, for those who start to journal or whatever it is, writing love letters to themselves, explain why you started there. Well, I, I take these daily walks here in Los Angeles, hiking through the mountains, and it always feels where I'm most connected, most connected to myself, to whom I call G-O-D, because I like to rap to him mm -hmm. or whomever. Whoever. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, and which for me, G-O-D actually means guidance of the divine. Right. Uh, and so during our walks, I always feel like I'm just gifted with this guidance and I step outside of my head and I'm always in my heart. And so if there was anybody to write the foreword for my book, it would be G-O-D because it's filled with unconditional love um, and just really seeing me, understanding me and allowing that to come forward. Well, I think one of the themes in the way you wrote it, and I, I wanted to get this right, and it said in the letter of G-O-D to you, I allow you to find your own way, because in that journey, you will discover all of who you are, and that is the day I rejoice, as you are my greatest masterpiece. And I stopped when I read that. I said, what a beautiful way to put that. G-O-D has written to you, but did G-O-D write that to you because you failed to write that to yourself? At times. Yeah. At times, I, th yeah. I think that letter is the journey through my life because there are absolutely moments where that is me speaking and absolutely moments where I need to be reminded that that's who yeah. I am. Yeah. It was sometimes very painful to read the beginning of it as you related some of the things that led you to, to your, your current environment, which is actually wonderful and joyful. But here's where the contrast, it began in what was definitely a period of darkness. And as an author, let me first thank you for bringing that darkness to light and for having the vulnerability and the courage to explain the origins. If you wouldn't mind, Sherry, and I think um, it's certainly, it's in the book, so I'm hoping you're comfortable talking about it. Just explain the origin of where to you this journey began. I don't remember much from before this time. And I don't remember a lot from after that time. Yeah. 
you know, what I do remember is that moment in time. And for me, it was at seven years old. Uh, my sister was going to hang out with her friends and my mom said to my older sister what you know some parents say like let your sister tag along and so I went along with my sister and her friends and their family to the beach and uh, I was left in the hands of someone who happened to I guess be a regular there I don't know the, the, the local fisherman um, and I ended up being sexually molested uh, while I was there at the beach that day. And I was threatened as a lot of kids are, you know, don't tell, if you tell, I'm gonna hurt your parents. And um, it was something that I carried with me, but I still, to this day, people ask me like, what gave you the strength and the courage to tell? And I just still don't know the answer, except that I knew that I needed to. And so, yeah. And so that found me actually on a witness stand uh, prosecuting him and speaking out about what he had done and putting him in prison for five years. Uh, and, and when I look back at it, I look at, I didn't just put him in prison, I put myself there as well. Right. In fact, I'm, I'm wondering when, as I read that, I tried to, as a father of four children, I tried to put myself in a place because I don't, I can't relate to what it was like to be you at that time. But I can try to understand if that were my child who had been a victim of that molestation and you're putting a child in a courtroom and that is the only way to get to who really should be the victim, not you, but the individual, the perpetrator. Do you even remember what that was like? I have flashes of it. Um, there are certain moments in time that stick out to me and, and one of them specifically is when they asked me to identify him, what he was wearing. So I had to look right at him. And also they asked me to state my name and address out loud. And I remember being terrified in that moment that I, re I like remember these specific thoughts thinking that he was gonna memorize my address. And when he got out, he was gonna come. Right. Um, and then I remember that they had told me beforehand to describe parts of my body, calling them private parts. So it's like these moments and flashes in time of that day, uh, but it was really, the thing, and I always smile about it because the thing that stood out for me more than anything were the two paralegals that took care of me that day beforehand that were playing Barbies with me and made me feel super safe. And that I carried through me with my life because I always say that we never know, we never know what we're doing in this world and the impact that we have. And so these two women who were just, you know, doing their job actually made that day bearable for me. Well, what's interesting, the fragments that you remember were your guiding, your guidepost at the time that was trying to find your center, trying to find the courage of what ultimately this book spilled out in droves. Because as I read that, and I continue to read the book, I said, all I saw was vulnerability and courage. But there was something else that was going in along the way that struck me because I myself as a child dealt with childhood obesity and I'm not certainly comparing it to the tragedy that you had, but I did relate to that. As you worked through your, the courtroom and all of the pain that went through there, how did you choose to deal with it at the time? By not dealing with it. Right. And how was that? What else did you deal with that led you to some other, unfortunately, for better or for worse, some things that you recall in the book were struggles? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's interesting because 
uh, I remember I was told that I was courageous and I was brave and I was a hero because he had done this to other girls. Right. And so I had stopped him from doing this to other girls. And so I grew up with this, these words in my head. And so for me, all I wanted to do was follow what a brave and courageous girl would do. And so for me, that was to always be happy, but we can't force happy. And when things like this happen to us, there's stuff that's brewing inside, you know, whether we let it rise to the top or not. And so it shows up in lots of different ways. And for me, you know, every time the emotions wanted to rise, of course, consciously, I didn't understand this, but I chose food. Right. I chose food as the mechanism to numb down those emotions. I drank a lot with my friends. Um, I was promiscuous with men. I was really looking for just ways to avoid all that stuff that was there and just have fun. Yeah, no, and I understand that. And I, I feel the pain of that one because it is masking something else and you're finding pleasure in something when you're not finding it somewhere else. I want to switch the focus here because early on in the book, and, and it's very much in the title, Love Yourself Happy, there was a really good question. This is the whopper that hung out there. How do you even define happiness? But before you get that, I want to write a few things that, 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 that really jumped out at me, and, and it came into three things. Grand plans, big dreams, huge calling. And that was juxtaposed to the chapter of, well, how do we define this? And is that, in fact, is it happiness? Is it a path to happiness? Or is just, or what difference does it make? Why does that matter? How did you come to define and understand what happiness really is? Well, I, I, I think I've only recently understood um, happiness. And, and that was because in juxtaposition to joy, which I, I speak and understand now. Uh, but happiness... <laughs> It's interesting. Happiness for me was 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 the pursuit. I mean, we've been pursuing it right since. I mean, they even said in the Declaration of Independence. Right. <laughs> it's being sold to us. <laughs> Happiness and the, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of this thing, which who defines it? And we can't maintain it, no matter what. Like well, right? we don't know what it is. Right. I mean, I, I wrote about it in my book that the World Happiness Report, the UN, you know, they, they That's create a good one. money and all of this stuff and like these different categories of what happiness is. But sure. for me, every time I felt like I was happy, it also felt like this dark cloud would come in and just wash my damn happy away. Yeah. Um, and it's only because, though, you know, happiness is an emotion, like all of them. And, you know, it's energy and motion. And so, we're always in pursuit of it because it's a moving target. It doesn't stay still. Yeah. Well, you, you're, you're, that part of the book, it, 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 it brought me back to, in, in the study of economics, you read about this little kingdom in Asia called Bhutan. And their economists don't just measure gross domestic product, they measure gross domestic happiness. And they have a happiness, a measurement. So economists are actually measuring happiness because in their Eastern world, in the philosophy of Buddhism, they are always looking for the clarity, but they wanted to be able to define it, to measure it, and to help people understand this is our definition, and if you want to improve it, you can measure it. I feel like in the West, it's this big amorphous thing. I don't know what it is, but when I saw grand plans, big dreams, and huge calling, was there happiness baked into that? Was that achievement, or are they- That was they, achievement. 
Right. And, and how did that relate to, to, to what was your definition of happiness? And I want the listeners to pick up on this because I feel even for my graduate students, this is their happiness. But what I tried to tell them, this is what you do. It's not who you are. What I read in your book, Sherry, is who you are. I don't give a damn what you do. Whatever you do is great. That's your choice. But as I get to know you, I know who you are and they're not the same. Was that what you were going for? Yeah, I mean, that was for me what happiness looked like. Happiness looked like being a star in Hollywood. Happiness looked like having, you know, not consciously, I didn't know it, but validation and a cheers and the applause. And, but also, also there was something underneath it that said, you can change the world, you can change the world. Um, and, and so it was a mix of that. So there was this big idea that me being big and out there would change the world in some way. And I thought that's what happiness was. I want to I want to backtrack a bit, and then I want to get to the prescriptive mm -hmm. part of the book, which I really enjoy. I, I enjoy. I love the book, but the prescription part, I think, this is the good part in the call to action for our listeners. You and I have something in common, and that there is a time when we opened up our closets. My guess is you probably like mine opened up your closet or your drawers and had a lot of orange clothes because we are both graduates of, of the institution known as Syracuse University and our dorms were probably within 500 feet of each other. You were, you were a bit across the street. We didn't know each other. I'm 20 years ahead of you, but we have a common bond in that we walked the same paths. We have a common bond in that we both dealt with obesity. We have a common bond in that we both try to the extent we can to wake up every day in the service of someone else's happiness and success. Your book put into perspective, if nothing else, it's okay not to be okay, and you are not alone. As I read it, where the turning point was in the book to me, and I wonder if we could make this our turning point. You stated very clearly in one of the chapters, and I'm being purposely vague, and I want to state it just the way I read it. It's time to feel the event and put an end to it. Now, that event could be a lot of different things, but this is the turning point in your mindset. Is that where you made up their mind, your mind? Okay, that's it. Now I got to look forward instead of looking back. What were you going for in that chapter? Well, I was tired. <laughs> I was honestly like exhausted of trying to outrun outrun the pain, outrun whatever it felt like kept holding me back. And I knew that I was never going to outrun it. And so, yes, I need to turn towards it. I needed to look at it. I needed to actually face what had happened to me and to stop placating and to stop acting like, you know, even trying, I wrote a chapter, you know, trying to find the good in it and finding yeah. the bright side about everything. You know, it really yeah. was about looking at the events and, and, and staring it straight in the face. Yeah, and there, there was a cool part of the book. I'd been to Sedona, Arizona, and I remember walking around there. There's these little signs when you're climbing their cliffs, and it talks about this life force, this energy. And I didn't know what they were talking about. But I think all of us see signs, and sometimes we don't know it until in retrospect, oh, my God, I saw the sign. You began to see signs, whether it was Sedona or not. Relate to our listeners, what were those signs so they know what to look for, whether it was Sedona or otherwise, about your change? Well, the biggest sign for me always is the voice within. That's, that's, that's the number one. That's, and, and it's more than a sign, it's guidance. 
And the majority of the time, we're not ready to hear it. Right. And so we push it away. We go, we go, we'll get to it later. We distract ourselves. Uh, and for me, just because Sedona was such a, a powerful shift for me, you know, I literally saw a sign on my computer that was an ad for Sedona. Um, sometimes the things, the signs show up that obviously, and other times, you know, sometimes it's a bumper sticker on a car. Yeah, it's the so simplest things. Yeah, but I think as, as, as I continued on your lovely journey, what it led me to was whatever those signs were, it was pointing to you to let go, let go of the burdens, the baggage. I began to feel lighter as I was heading three quarters into the book because I was feeling you feeling lighter. Let's describe what this concept is of holding tight versus the contrast of letting go, why it's important and how to go about doing it. Well, as you mentioned, uh, the, the holding on to, I, I, for myself, I could speak for myself and, and people that I work with that we often hold tight to the things that we worry about because we think that if we keep them close to us, then they can't bother us and they can't hurt us because we have them in sight. But what we don't realize is that we're actually strangling ourselves and suffocating ourselves with it. And we, we, we carry this baggage around with us. And the more that we don't deal with ourselves, the more that the baggage begins to get heavier and heavier. And then we wonder why things feel so heavy, right. why we feel so heavy. Uh, and so for me, I, like I said, I got so tired of just carrying it around and I was so exhausted because the struggle really wasn't in life itself. The struggle was in the way that I looked at it and, the, and, the, and me fighting against it. Right. You were describing the mindset and your mindset, your default mechanism was one big protective mechanism of keeping you right where you are. But what you, what I was looking for that ultimately came out was that concept of forgiveness, that it was interesting to read and startling and lovely about the hardest part person to forgive. What did you, what were you as you were going through this acceptance, through this letting go of the baggage, what were you forgiving yourself for that helped you to just strip it all away? I was forgiving myself for the choices that I had made for, um, because I thought that I should have been stronger, right? And braver and more courageous than the things that I was doing that I shouldn't have made some of the unhealthy choices that I made, that I, I, I should have been further along, like all of these should haves, how I should have showed up in the world. And this, I should have known better. I should have done something different. And, and I didn't realize that I was carrying around the guilt and the shame because you know I thought I was stronger than that and bigger than that. And so it was finally coming to terms with the fact that I was holding myself in judgment and I had hard expectations on myself. And being able to see my seven-year-old self and looking at her as a little girl and the innocence of her and knowing that she didn't do anything wrong that day and every choice she made from that point on was just done because she didn't know any better because she was hurt and she was wounded. Yeah. You know, what as, as I recalled the part where you then ventured into the examination of your self-worth, 
I recalled the earlier part of the book and I tried to visualize because you did such a wonderful job of the contrast, always relating the reader to go back to the way it was, to understand what was past, what's present, and what's your future. Well done, Sherry. That was beautifully done. But because of that, it helped me feel and it heightened the contrast between these two worlds. And in order to transition to the future self, it was all about you. It was no longer, you finally had to say, I don't have to placate. I don't have to please. For God's sakes, who am I in this world for? This was the turning point of the book. I thought it was before. Help us understand how you stripped away everything else and said, you know what, from now on, I'm going to look in that mirror. And this is a love letter to me. Because no matter how hard I tried to please others and to be perfect and to do all these things and show up the way that I thought the world wanted me to show up, there was always someone who just wasn't going to be happy with it and wasn't going to be pleased. And so I'd much rather look at myself in the mirror every single day and be happy with what I chose to do and how I showed up in the world than try to be what you wanted me to be and then me be unhappy with myself. Well, it was a starting, startling revelation when you said, somebody is missing. Duh. It's me. To anyone listening and to our viewers, thank you always for coming in. But I think so many of you, I know I do, can find solace and peace in recognizing that you're not alone. But Sherry's prescription then and what she describes, I don't want to give it all away because I think the book is so rich in value. I do want to finish up then and what we've laid down so far, I hope are points of relation that people can feel, hey, I get this. I'm not alone. It's okay not to be okay. For those who may relate, Sherry, to different points here of what we discussed, what do you want them, three things, what do you want them to think either about themselves or the world at large? What do you want them to feel about their future? But the important part, and we can stay as much time or as little as you need, what do you want them to do? I want people to, it's interesting. There's so many thoughts going there on. Is, I know that, and that's part of it. And this is really you speaking to the audience. This, this book was lovely. It was so, so powerful. This is now, we, we, you in the book are helping them, but this is a different mechanism. So think, feel, do the call to action. I want people to think that, think and know, to think that they're not alone. No. Um, that even in the times that it, it feels isolating to, to know that we always have ourselves. I mean, that's what got me through everything, right. really, is, is, is knowing that. I want them to feel their enoughness. Yeah, that was a predominant in the book. You are enough and don't drown out the noise. Stop listening to everyone else. Look in that mirror and know you're not alone. You're not enough. Now the call to action. What do you want them to do with all this? I want them to go easy on themselves. Yeah, that's how you concluded in the book. To, to lighten up. And in fact, I think one of the chapters, lighten up, I think that's the way you put it. Everybody just lighten up. Um, to our, where do we find you, Sherry? 
I'm all over social media. Yeah. Uh, and the easiest way to find that is just go to my website, uh, SherryElise.com and you can yeah. connect me there. And in your website, you point to Amazon for your book. I want to hear it from you. Title of the book. Love Yourself Happy, A Journey Back to You. A Journey Back to You. Well, Sherry, thank you very much for coming on to Climb to the Top. It's been a real pleasure. To our listeners and viewers, as I've mentioned, you're not alone. We are here in the service of your happiness, but you're going to have to meet us halfway. That's the reason we bring on lovely guests like Sherry who have dedicated her time to talk about her soul so they can help you relate to yours because we're all each other's teachers. The only way we're going to get through this is the recognition that if we're not alone, we coalesce as a community, that we find the common bonds that cause us both tragedy and triumph, and then we seek to find our own happiness. So I'm Chuck Garcia. I appreciate you coming in each week. You can always find me at chuckgarcia.com on all the social media outlets, either as Chuck Garcia or a climb to the top. For those of you watching us on YouTube, thank you. We appreciate you subscribing. But other than that, Sherry, from one Syracuse graduate to another, I bow to the divine in you, and I thank you very much for bringing your wonderful work to the stage and then to, 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 to the show. Looking ahead, well, let's finish there. What, what, what's ahead for Sherry? Ooh, I got a TEDx talk. Uh, congratulations. Tell us about it. Thank you. And what's going to be the theme or what are you working uh, on? Well, the theme of the event itself is movement. Okay. And I will be talking about the movement back within. Oh, fantastic. The movement back within, and we're going to leave it that way. I know many of you, as you step up and take your place in the world, you're going to read a lot of things, and you may be fearing being crushed under the weight of others' expectations. What I hope that you were able to receive in the spirit with which Sherry beautifully intended, drown out that noise. Stop worrying about the expectations of others. It's easier said than done. Look in that mirror and think about all of the divine things that you bring to yourself and to the rest of the world and recognize that the pursuit here is to love yourself happy, that this is your journey and there's only one person who can measure the benchmark of your happiness and that's you. So Sherry, thank you again for coming on to the show. To our listeners, thank you always for tuning in. I'm Chuck Garcia. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.